Welcome to the Republic of the Rio Grande. Episode 9, The Battle of Alcantara. I'm Brandon Seal. Growing up in Guerrero, which of course back then was known as Revilla, as the poor son of a cowboy, Antonio Zapata probably grew up admiring José Bernardo Gutiérrez de Lara. Gutiérrez de Lara was a generation older than Zapata. He had land, he had some money, and he'd received an education. But what made Gutiérrez de Lara really stand out was his charisma, particularly after 1810 when he became one of the most outspoken advocates of republicanism against the ancient rights and privileges of Spanish royalists. Even as a poor boy from a radically different background, Antonio Zapata likely could have related to this cry for autonomy. It was, after all, the lived ethos of the entire Spanish-North American frontier. Which is what makes it so strange that now, in 1839, the 65-year-old Gutierrez de Lara found himself in command of nearly 500 centralist government soldiers arrayed against the 1,000 or so Federalist insurgents under the command of Antonio Zapata. Indeed, even the composition of Zapata and Canales' Federalist army should have reminded Gutierrez de Lara of his old Republican army back in 1813, comprised in near-equal parts of Spanish frontiersmen, Anglo-Americans, and Native Americans. Hell, the commander of the Anglo-Americans in Zapata and Canales' army in 1839 was actually the nephew of the Anglo-American who had eventually commanded the Anglos in Gutierrez de Lara's army. He even had the same name, Reuben Ross. So how could Gutierrez de Lara justify his apparent flip-flop, his conversion into an establishment man this late in his career? Could he not see the connections to the cause that he had fought and bled for? One source I found even claims that two of Gutierrez de Lara's sons were actually serving under Zapata and Canales, further confirmation that there was something incongruous about Gutierrez de Lara's new allegiance. Fortunately, we don't really have to guess as to what was motivating him. The ever-wordy Gutierrez de Lara tells us himself, or rather, he told Antonio Zapata in a letter written to him as the younger man's forces took up positions outside Guerrero on September 22, 1839. Quote, Mi siempre querido amigo, end quote. Gutierrez de Lara begins, my always beloved friend. And he seems to mean it too, because the entire letter that follows has the tone of fatherly advice. It's not really about ideology for Gutierrez de Lara at this late stage in his career. It's about Zapata's choice of allies. The men serving under you, he tells Zapata, are nothing more than, quote, adventurers and vandals, end quote, apparently agreeing with the centralist government's propaganda. Separate yourself from them, Gutierrez de Lara, please. These, quote, unquote, adventurers, Gutierrez de Lara continues, referring now specifically to the Anglo-Texians, are, quote, not even supported by their own colonies, end quote. And yet, Gutierrez de Lara isn't necessarily striking an anti-Anglo note here, as you might suspect from someone who'd been abandoned by some, although not all, of his Anglo allies back in 1813. More than anything, what it feels like Gutierrez de Lara is really voicing is a generation's worth of fatigue, at all of the instability and bloodshed that had brought Mexico to where it was in 1839. Fractured, bankrupt, and in desperate need of just a few years of peace. Quote, Lay down your arms for the good of your country, end quote. Gutierrez de Lara begs his beloved friend, 
and do it, quote, as well for your own well-being, end quote. There was real wisdom in Gutierrez de Lara's suggestion, wisdom that he was pulling from a deep well of experience. But his friend, former business partner, and mentee, Antonio Zapata, had already committed himself to the course that he was on until he should shed, quote, the last drop of his blood, end quote. And once committed to a course of action, Zapata was not the type of man to deviate from it. To the point that some even called him, quote, headstrong and stubborn, end quote. And in this case, then, it's not surprising that he wasn't moved by his former business partner's pleas. Zapata waited for a week, making preparations, waiting to see, perhaps, if Gutierrez de Lara would give in or come over, maybe even, to the Federalist side. But Gutierrez de Lara could be headstrong and stubborn in his own way. Zapata probably knew this about Gutierrez de Lara, just as Gutierrez de Lara must have known this about Zapata. On October 1st, 1839, Zapata and Canales split their forces into two in preparation for battle. Zapata crossing the Rio Grande with his contingent upstream of the town and descending on Guerrero from the north, Canales crossing with his force downstream of the town and attacking Guerrero from the south. Gutierrez de Lara was either unprepared for this or taken entirely off guard. In either case, he made a surprisingly weak showing for a man who had not lost a battle back in Texas a generation prior. It didn't help, of course, that the forces under his command weren't particularly committed to their cause or to the idea of dying in this remote little frontier town. Once the first shots were fired and Zapata and Canales started converging on Guerrero from north and south at the same time, the centralist conscripts realized that they'd been trapped between Zapata and Canales' pincers. Most of them fled downstream without a fight. Already outnumbered, even before this mass desertion, Gutierrez de Lara was now outmaneuvered, even more outmanned, and totally out of luck. The man who had never lost a battle to the Spanish crown in 1813 was no match for an army of vaqueros in 1839. Here's an account of what happened next. Quote, After the garrison was overrun by the Federalists, Don Bernardo, he's referring to Gutierrez de Lara, was captured as he tried to cross the Rio Salado. One of the Texan soldiers recognized him and pointed him out, whereupon Don Bernardo demanded to be taken to the commanding officer, who turned out to be Colonel Reuben Ross. Don Bernardo then asked him if he was related to Major Reuben Ross, who had fought with him in Texas in the Republican Army of the North. Colonel Ross replied that he was Major Ross's nephew, and Don Bernardo said that in that case, he knew he would be treated in a humane fashion. End quote. Maybe. I don't quite buy this version of events entirely. Relations between Uncle Ruben Ross and Gutierrez de Lara hadn't been the best back in 1813. We also have another probably exaggerated account of Gutierrez de Lara's capture. In this version, Antonio Canales walked up to the aged and shackled revolutionary and ripped the gold epaulets off of his government uniform, then allowed his men to sack his home. Again, this doesn't really sound like Canales, who was always too much of a politician to burn bridges gratuitously. And it's hard to believe that Zapata would have allowed anyone to abuse his, quote, siempre querido amigo, end quote. In either case, Gutierrez de Lara was allowed to live. 
He was paroled and released into the care of his family. He lived for a year with one son, who then passed him along the next year to a daughter, who a few months later took him to another one of his son's houses. Old age was not kind to people in the 19th century. On May 13, 1841, José Bernardo Gutiérrez de Lara died at the age of 66 in Santiago, Nuevo León, where he is today interred in the cathedral on the main plaza there. A quiet end to a decidedly unquiet life. Antonio Zapata didn't hang around Guerrero philosophizing about his old friend's defeat, however. In his typical fashion, Zapata continued downriver, this time toward Mier, in pursuit of the fleeing centralists with 476 cavalrymen, 106 infantry, 111 Indians, and 250 mounted riflemen, a classically frontier-style breakdown of forces with their heavy reliance on mounted troops. This force entered Mier with Zapata in the lead on October 2nd, again reminding us of the speed with which Zapata always pursued his enemies. The centralists didn't even stop to put up a fight in Mier and just kept fleeing downriver. And again, Zapata didn't let up. He and his force pursued the centralists through the night until at last the centralists saw that it was pointless to keep retreating and selected a high piece of ground on which to make their stand about 15 miles east of Mier. It didn't take long for Zapata to identify the weakness of their position. In selecting the high ground, they had neglected to ensure access to water. Zapata force-marched his men around them and cut them off from the only nearby watering hole. And the next day, October 3rd, 1839, Zapata attacked, and the Battle of Alcantara was begun. Zapata personally led his 300-strong corps of vaqueros and the 100 or so Carrizo Indians under his command. The Carrizos are an ever-present factor in the story of Antonio Zapata, an indication of their loyalty to him. Modern Carrizos hold that Zapata was himself part Carrizo. But we also shouldn't underestimate their ideological commitment to the cause. According to one chronicler, Carrizo's full-throated support of Mexican independence had brought about severe retributions from Spanish authorities, the losses from which, quote, considerably diminished the tribe, end quote. According to another contemporary, the Carrizo tribe, quote, had suffered greatly from military oppression and was more alive to the revolution than the Mexicans. At one point in 1839, they would be mass incarcerated in Matamoros by centralist authorities, an act which of course only hardened their hatred of the central government. And so it was no surprise that the Carrizos threw themselves into the fight, encircling the centralist in a swirling mass of horses and dust and powder smoke. The centralists put up a fair defense, however, using their ammunition wisely and effectively, in preventing Zapata and his force from closing in. The Texians had been held back from Zapata's initial assault by Antonio Canales. This was perhaps a calculation meant to limit the involvement of the Texians in the battle, unless absolutely necessary, to avoid playing into centralist propaganda that this really was a foreigner's fight. Instead, Canales deployed his meager artillery to try to soften the centralist lines, but to minimal effect. By this time, Zapata and his 300 men had closed in on the centralists, but many had dismounted and the fight had devolved into a general hand-to-hand melee. And yet Canales still held back the Texians. Even Canales' chief of staff, José María Carvajal, was baffled. Zapata and his men needed help, it was clear. Sensing the desperateness of the situation, 
Carvajal eventually personally rallied 25 men and charged into the fray. From that point forward, the fiery Carvajal was seen at all points of the action, even after being wounded in his left arm. His heroics helped turn the tide and won a similar respect from the Anglo-Texians as that which they held for Antonio Zapata, who was his usual badass self in this battle as well. Finally, once it seemed that the tide had kind of turned, Canales committed the rest of his forces, including the Anglo-Texians, and with that the Federalists comfortably carried the day. The Battle of Alcantara, as it came to be known by Anglo-Texian chroniclers, was the Federalists' greatest victory to date. At the cost of only a few dozen men killed and wounded, Zapata and Canales killed 150 Centralists and captured another 350, a hundred of which came over to the Federalist side. And yet the Federalist victory at Alcantara, which by the way goes down in Mexican history books as La Meca, didn't play like a victory in the national press. Indeed, despite Canales' careful reservation of the Anglo-Texians from the hottest part of the fight, the whole scene played right into the centralist government narrative. This movement wasn't about federalism, they said. This wasn't about the grievances of hundreds or thousands of neglected borderlanders. This wasn't even about self-government. This was nothing more than a foreign invasion, government newspapers said, a treasonous alliance with, quote, foreign adventurers and vandals, end quote, to use Gutierrez de Lara's words. Even some of the residents of the Rio Grande Villas began to buy into the rhetoric. One of those Villas, the Villa actually that Zapata and Canales had just passed through, Mier, actually depronounced at this juncture, something which surely landed as an emotional gut punch to the Federalist revolutionaries. And in a vicious cycle, this actually pushed them even further into a state of dependency on Texas. The Federalists actually sent a former governor of Coahuila, Texas, to Texas to invite the new republic to join into a union with the other northeastern Mexican states. The first hint, perhaps, that the Rio Grande Federalists were starting to think of themselves not so much as proponents of a Federalist revolution, but as founders, perhaps, of a Federalist state. The Republic of Texas didn't seriously consider the offer, but the Texas government did quietly allow for more men and supplies to make their way into Zapata and Canales' army. The victory at the Battle of Alcantara and its subsequent depiction as a foreign invasion presented Zapata and Canales with a dilemma. A dilemma that perfectly exposed their differences in disposition and demeanor. From Zapata's standpoint, they had the momentum for the first time since the spring. Their army now sat between the centralist garrisons in Matamoros and Monterrey. To Zapata's tactical mind, he had the centralists forked. All he had to do was pick which garrison he wanted to take on first. And Matamoros, to his eye, seemed open for the taking. Yet Canales, ever the politician, saw the makings of a strategic defeat in the guise of their tactical victory. He knew that an army full of Anglo-Texians and unpolished vaqueros from the Rio Grande sacking Matamoros would play horribly in the government papers. So he held Zapata back, to the great frustration of Zapata, and to the even greater frustration of the Anglo-Texian volunteers in the ranks, whose eagerness to attack Matamoros probably only further reinforced Canales' reluctance to let them do so. Just then, the Comanches came to the rescue of the Rio Grande Federalist Army, in the sense that they prevented that army from tearing itself apart over what to do next after the Battle of Alcantara. Just a week or so after the battle, 
reports of a major Comanche raid descending from the north began to circulate in the Rio Grande Villas. And then, in the first days of November, the rumors were confirmed when the Comanches attacked San Antonio, killing 18 residents there. A few days later, the Comanches showed up in the Wild Horse Desert between the Nueces and the Rio Grande. Yet to the surprise of everyone, so too did old Sombrero Mantecoso, Antonio Zapata. The man who quote-unquote always wanted to fight, end quote, had been dissuaded from attacking Matamoros when another, older enemy presented itself to his view. Zapata fell seamlessly back into his old role as commander of the local Compañía Volante, peeling his best men out of the larger Rio Grande Federalist force and storming them north to face off against the Comanches. The evidence we have of his effectiveness in this campaign was that the Villas del Norte did not sustain the kind of losses that San Antonio did. In fact, as best I can tell, there were no deaths or kidnappings at all to report. In fact, in a matter of just a few days, Zapata turned the momentum of the Comanche raid, and soon it was they who were on the run from Zapata. Zapata and his group of core fighters spent a month in the saddle chasing the Comanches out of South Texas. Now, of course, this also neutralized any ability of Canales and the Federalist forces that had remained outside of Matamoros to continue in their offensive against Centralists. But in a larger sense, it also begged the question, why did Federalist revolutionaries continuously have to break off their war with the central government to do the job that the central government was supposed to be doing? Namely, protecting its citizens from Indios Barbaros. And even more, in the years since the Rio Grande Federalists had taken the armory at Camargo, they had increasingly taken on the form of a shadow government. In addition to providing for the defense of the pueblos from Indios Barbaros, the Rio Grande Federalist movement was now actually collecting more than half of the customs duties and taxes in the region. They'd even set up a postal service, something which had never existed in the region previously at any functional level, at least not since colonial times. And they were even talking now about setting up public schools, a long-held Federalist dream. What was this movement now, if not a government? An independent government? An independent, dare we say, republic? Hadn't the example of Texas two years prior just shown the viability of an independence project? Hadn't the last year, the last 15 years for that matter, shown that Mexico City would never accept any form of federalism or power sharing with the outlying states? Why not return then to that short-lived dream of a generation prior of a separate, or at least quasi-autonomous, republic of the northeastern border? And there was a tactical reason for them to start thinking about their movement as an independence movement. If the Rio Grande Federalists were going to be able to make good on their victory at Alcantara, they needed the support of foreign governments, something that could never happen if they were perceived as simply partisans in a domestic civil war. Diplomatic assistance could only come, Canales in particular came to realize, with recognition as a legitimate, independent state. Canales had resisted this idea for the last year. His initial ambition truly seems to have been sparking a federalist rebirth across Mexico at large. And we saw in the previous episode the bitterness that he still felt toward the Texians for having cleaved themselves off from the patria. Yet despite his suspicion of the Texians, he needed their aid, and he knew it. And he knew that this was something which they couldn't keep giving him until he had taken the step of formally declaring a separation from the rest of Mexico. On November 10, 1839, 
almost exactly one year after he had pronounced against the centralist government at Camargo. Antonio Canales issued a rather bold circular to quote, all the inhabitants of the three states of the frontier, end quote, referring to Coahuila, Nuevo León, and Tamaulipas, of course. He called on the people of the northeastern border to, quote, decide once and for all to sustain that government that in their conception has offered them the most protection, or which seems most just, end quote. This was, of course, a leading statement. He knew that it was his movement which was providing protection to the Villas, and which, at least in his mind, was acting in the manner most just. And of course, the just answer is that there can only be one legitimate government, the government that legitimately protects its citizens. And the citizens of the state, in turn, owe a duty to that government. Over the course of 11 paragraphs, Canales then goes on to lay out what this duty looks like. First, all men in Tamaulipas, Coahuila, and Nuevo León were called to service in his Federalist Army. Quote, Whoever may oppose or not aid in such a sacred objective will lose the rights that they may have to tracts of land that they may possess within the territory of the same state, end quote. Which is a pretty draconian assertion with respect to individuals and individual property rights, but Canales was clever enough to couch it by a keen respect for the traditional role of the pueblos in his new government. The towns or the pueblos, quote, that joined in the reestablishment of the Federalist system, end quote, would recover their proper and primary place that they had always enjoyed in the Hispanic legal tradition as the building blocks of his new government system. Which is what he's actually declaring here. Canales is laying the foundation for a new, quote, government to be established, end quote. Quote, el Estado, the state, he calls it, for the first time that I've found. And so in order to make this a reality, Canales invited the pueblos to appoint commissioners to convene at a later date and form this government. When Zapata returned from his campaign against the Comanches and rejoined the main body of the Rio Grande Federalist Army sometime in early December 1839, Canales now felt ready to attack. He had laid the proper political, legal foundation for his campaign, such that a victory now in Matamoros would accrue to the benefit of the Federalist movement not to the Texian adventurers or the chusma of vaqueros under his command. And so, Canales and Zapata resumed the offensive. On December 10th, 1839, they reached the outskirts of Matamoros, where actually they were outnumbered by the centralist garrison there, 1,600 to 1,000, and outgunned 18 cannon to four. And yet numbers, they knew, could be misleading in these kinds of conflicts, where a motivated 1,000 could defeat an unmotivated 1,600 any given day of the week. Hadn't that more or less been the troop count at the Battle of San Jacinto? As per usual, Zapata led the initial approaches himself. He led a mixed company of vaqueros and Texians against the centralist outposts that guarded the approaches into Matamoros, and he overwhelmed them without losing a man. But the rest of the city was now alerted, and seemed much better defended. Zapata wanted to rush the rest of the defenders in Matamoros, but Canales held him and his forces back. The size of the centralist force and the strength of their position was becoming apparent. The Texians protested loudly at Canales' hesitation, though once again their impatience only confirmed for Canales his reservations at turning them loose on the people of Matamoros. And once the Texians realized that they weren't going to get to plunder the prosperous port town, half of them left in a huff, 
reducing Canales' headcount by a hundred men and reducing the larger force's morale. All of which the Centralists saw. And soon, the Centralists were launching sallies, probing the Rio Grande Federalist lines, exposing their weaknesses, and preparing for a counterattack. Canales and Zapata knew that they needed a new plan. Matamoros hadn't been nearly as vulnerable as they'd thought. Yet one advantage they still had was their mobility and their speed across the countryside. What if they could catch Monterey unguarded? That would be an even greater prize than Matamoros. The Centralists would have to sue for peace then for sure. And so after six days of skirmishing outside of Matamoros, Canales and Zapata quietly pulled up stakes on the night of December 16th and wheeled their forces west through the Barretas and Anacuites of the Tamaulipan Plains toward the foothills of the Sierra Madre Oriental. On December 27, 1839, the Rio Grande Federalists entered Cadarreta, a town just east of Monterrey. They had covered nearly 175 miles in 10 days, a really remarkable feat in the dead of winter. But to their great disappointment, they found Monterey even more stoutly defended than Matamoros. The Federalist nemesis, Centralist General Mariano Arista, had actually just received reinforcements the day before, bringing his troop count up to 2,000 men, more than double the number that Canales and Zapata commanded now. This was the same General Mariano Arista who had sent Zapata and Canales hightailing it across the Rio Grande in August, just a few months prior, and whose propaganda campaign had so effectively worn down Mexican support for the Rio Grande Federalists. The irony of his role in this war was that he was actually known to be pretty sympathetic to the Federalist cause, and when he later became president, a decade or so later, he would do so as a Federalist. Yet he was also a man of duty, and he abhorred the presence of foreign, quote, adventurers inside Mexico, and he was suspicious of the freewheeling actions of Zapata and his chusma, or rabble, which he did not fail to have centralist newspapers continuously highlight. Realizing the futility of a direct assault on Arista's garrison, Zapata devised a different plan. Zapata took his cavalry, a few hundred men in total, and over the course of the next 24 hours rode them clear around Monterrey and surprised the town now from the northwest. Descending on the city along the flank of Topo Chico Hill, and yes, that's the Topo Chico where the mineral water comes from, Zapata suddenly appeared in Arista's rear. Zapata had caught the veteran Arista, in fact, entirely by surprise. And over the course of the next 48 hours, Zapata pushed his way boldly inside the northwestern city limits of Monterrey, almost making it to the famed Bishop's Palace. Yet as even Zapata knew, 48 hours on a battlefield is quite a lot of time. And it was plenty of time for General Arista to shuffle his forces around to square off against Zapata. By the 1st of January, 1840 now, General Arista had brought Zapata's attack to a grinding halt. General Arista deployed his considerable political prowess as well. He sent messengers out amongst Canales' men left behind on the east side of Monterrey to sow dissension, doubt, and fear amongst the Federalist soldiers who, Arista's agents reminded them, were engaged right now in the kind of treasonous activities that could get them lined up against the wall and shot. It worked, in particular, on the hundred or so Federalists who had so recently defected after the Battle of Alcantara and who quickly flip-flopped again back over to the government cause. With Canales' force on the east of Monterrey now depleted even further, General Arista 
returned his attention to Zapata. He sent out cavalry, who managed to whip one of Zapata's foraging parties on January 2nd, 1840. This show of strength alerted Zapata to his vulnerability and forced him to pull back. The next day, January 3rd, he rejoined Canales' larger force. The second Federalist assault on Monterrey, they realized, was over. The Rio Grande Federalists were right back to where they had been in August, retreating from the outskirts of Monterrey toward the Rio Grande Vias with General Mariano Arista in hot pursuit. It's too simplistic to call Canales and Zapata's campaign of November-December 1839 a failure, just as it's too much to really claim that the October Battle of Alcantara was a victory. Zapata and Canales had attacked the two largest cities in the region, and they had certainly demonstrated to outsiders and locals both that the centralist government did not control this part of Mexico. Which sounds like the kind of clever strategy you'd expect from a brush fox like Antonio Canales. And never was Canales more of a fox than in the months to come. He was about to simultaneously undertake two virtually self-contradictory initiatives. On the one hand, he began to negotiate a surrender to centralist General Arista. But at the same time, he began to put into motion a plan to declare the independence of the Republic of the Northern Frontier. The Republic of the Rio Grande, as it would become known in English. Were both of these sincere efforts? Was either of them? And how would his compadre, Antonio Zapata, take it when he found out that Canales was negotiating with the enemy? On the next episode of The Republic of the Rio Grande. Thank you for listening. In February of 2022, we'll be conducting almost a month's worth of fieldwork to uncover archaeological evidence of the location of the Battle of Medina, the largest battle in Texas history. If you want to learn more about the battle, go back and listen to season two of this series. If you want to learn more about our search and our partnership with the 501c3 American Veterans Archaeological Recovery Project, go to www.brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was provided by Susana Canseco. The portrait of Antonio Zapata that serves as the cover art for this season was created by artist Matt Tumlinson. Check him out at Matt underscore Tumlinson on Instagram. Sound engineering for this episode was performed by Stephen Bennett, who also arranged and performed the theme music. The theme music was actually written, however, by Mercurio Martinez, a Zapata County rancher, county treasurer, school principal, and descendant of one of Escandon's founding families. Martinez was the co-author of the first history of Zapata County, which he titled The Kingdom of Zapata. And in his spare time, he penned Corridos. Well, I found one of his corridos in his collected papers at Texas A&M's Cushing Library. And in that corrido, Martinez had written a melody that he had intended for his Corrido de la Presa, the story of the construction of Lake Falcón and of his role in preserving what he could of the communities later lost to the lake. I love that we've been able to bring back to life this melody here. And I thank Stephen for it. You can check out Stephen's work at Noso Media. That's N-O-S-O-Media.com. I want to call out here for recognition the work of Juan Jose Gallegos. A retired NASA engineer, Gallegos went back to get a master's in history from the University of Houston and produced an incredible thesis dedicated to the life of Antonio Zapata, which in part inspired this season. Thanks as well to Professor Stan Green at Texas A&M University in Laredo. Professor Green actually has a book coming out soon about these events and others, currently titled 
Las Vías del Norte, a history from 1748 to 1821. Definitely don't miss the Museum of the Republic of the Rio Grande in downtown Laredo if you're ever there. They have brand new exhibits that they've just opened telling more of the story that we're recounting here. And if you're interested in the history or genealogy of the Vías del Norte, check out Moises de la Garza's website, lasviasdelnorte.com. Thanks additionally to Cesarino Hosa, my touring buddy for these old towns in Mexico, and descendant himself of some of the first founders of the Lower Rio Grande. And thank you to Javier Cervantes with the Tapilam Coahuilpecan Nation, and Juan Mancias with the Carrizo Come Crudo Nation for their guidance too. For more information generally, check out our website at www.brandonseal.com.